So, uh, I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, and, and by the way, it, if you brought your Bible today, if, it, if it's on your device, or, or if you can locate one in the pew close to you, I would advise you to have a Bible out today, because we are going to do a little bit of Bible work. It'll all be in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is where we're going to start. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And our current series, of course, is... Uh, going to take us up to the very beginning of Advent, so really we just have uh, one more week of this series after this one, uh, believe it or not, and it's been on the great commandments in the law. Uh, The two great commandments that Jesus gives that we just heard about that, and the bottom line is, if we want to know why we exist, if we want to know what we were made for, if if we want to know what matters most in life, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms, love. Love for God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and love for our neighbors as ourselves. And that's true of us as individuals and is true for us together as a church. And uh, we've said previously, uh, we can have a very clear sense of our mission together. What is our mission together? That's like a C, all right? Um, which is, by the way, how I got through college. All right. Um, <laughs> connecting people with the hope of the gospel. We, have a, we can have a clear sense of our destination, where we want to go as a church. And we can have a firm grasp on the core values that drive us there. I learned, just learned my lesson. I'm not going to ask you to name those. It's real hope, deep connection, full engagement, and wide reach. And you go, yeah, I knew that. You know, you can have a good idea of your destination and you can even have the vehicle that you believe will take you there. But if you don't have fuel, you will never go anywhere. We can desire to connect people with the hope of the gospel. We can seek to embody and embrace the values that drive that mission. But if we are not ultimately fueled by love for God and love for our neighbors, we're never going anywhere. The Apostle Paul wrote, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not what? Love, I gain nothing. So it is that we have been focused on love. Loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind. Having both our inner selves and our outer behavior, our outer lives, transformed by and animated by a comprehensive and devoted love for God. And we've also, the last two weeks, been focused on loving our neighbors. Realizing that Jesus was a neighbor to us when we were still his enemies, living for us the righteous life that we failed to live, dying for us the death that we deserved and receiving the condemnation that our sins merited and rising again to win for us victory over sin and Satan and death forever, reconciling us to God, justifying us in his sight and giving us eternal life with him. Now, if we are justified by faith in Jesus, if if Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us makes us righteous in the sight of God once and for all, then we are free. 
We are free. It, if, if we can never change the relationship between us and God because He has said, you are mine, then we're free from having to justify ourselves. We're free from trying to find whatever God's minimum standard is of love for Him and love for neighbor. We're free from asking questions like, what must I do to be saved? Or, who is my neighbor? We're free to love our neighbors as Jesus loves. We're free to love radically. And when we do, it might might propel our neighbors to ask the question, why? Last week we started to talk about loving our neighbors with hospitality. We talked about sharing hospitality here at church, inviting people to church and being hospitable to people when they come in uh, to church, about practicing it with each other by having each other in, in one another's homes, and also with our literal neighbors, with the people who live close to us, to begin to have conversations and to invite people into our homes and into our lives. So I would ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, this week, who did you seek out? Who did you invite? Who did you bless? And this morning we're going to talk about when we do that. When we invite people into our homes, when we invite people into our lives, when we develop relationships with those who are yet lost, what do they see in us? What do they see in our lives? What message does the way that we live proclaim to them? We're going to talk about how to love our neighbors with holiness and with humility. So if you're able, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. And we're going to look together once again at Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, this is your word for your people in the time that you have appointed to give it. So, Lord, we ask that you would speak. Speak, Holy Spirit, to the hearts of your people that we might be transformed into the very image of Christ who loves us and gave himself up for us. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, and help us to live lives that are holy, lives that tell a better story. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the prophet Isaiah who has an encounter that really not many human beings have ever had, if any other human beings have ever had it. The Lord gives the prophet a vision of himself. And you can turn to Isaiah 6 if you want to confirm that what I'm saying is true. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. But it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, so a historical time and place, Isaiah sees the Lord. He has a vision of the Lord. And the Lord is so big and so magnificent. He says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne and the train of his robe, the corner of his garment 
filled the entirety of the massive temple with his glory. And beside him stood the seraphim. And these are not uh, the um, babies in a diaper with wings and halos and, and harps that we often think of when we think of angels. These are mighty warriors of God. And the scriptures tell us that they have six wings. Six wings. Two of them are used for flight. What are the others for? Well, two of them are used for covering the eyes of the seraphim, their faces, so that they cannot, because they cannot, behold the very holiness and splendor of God. And the other two are for covering their feet, because those are in honor of God's holiness. And they shout to one another, and they never stop shouting a threefold declaration about the Lord. What is it? Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. This threefold declaration in Hebrew is for emphasis. There was no punctuation in the Hebrew, no exclamation point. And so repetition is the way that this is emphasized. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And I guess our question, my question as I read this text is, okay, well, what does holy mean? And and through study, what I found out is that holy means two primary things. The first thing that holy means is, it comes from the Hebrew word kod, which means to cut. And it means to separate from everything else. Something that is set apart in a class by itself. Holy means that as God as creator, he is totally other than that that which he created. That God is high and above and beyond. That He is different and transcendent from everything else that exists in His essence and in His nature. And the second thing that holy means is that God is absolutely morally pure and perfect in all things and at all times. So God is utterly transcendent, far and above and beyond, other than everything that He created... And, he is, and so in every way, he is holy and set apart. But he is also and especially set apart in his absolute moral perfection and purity. His splendor of holiness. Now the scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament say to the people of God, whether Israel or the church, God speaks and says, be what? Holy as I am what? Holy. There's a huge problem with that. We can't be holy as God is holy. We cannot be high above and beyond everything else. We cannot be transcendent as God is. And we are not set apart as morally pure as God is. And Isaiah knew this. Isaiah knew that God was holy and that he was not. Which is why when Isaiah encounters the Lord, his reaction is not, look at the beauty and the splendor of God's holiness. Isn't it amazing? Isaiah's response was to fall on his face and to say, woe is me, for I am lost. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have beheld the king The Lord of hosts. And we are not like God in holiness. We are like Isaiah in sinfulness. We are people of unclean lips and unclean lives. We are messed up people and we live among messed up people. And if we don't believe that, Thanksgiving is coming. 
and we'll be around a lot of them. But the holy God that Isaiah encounters acts in an unpredictable way. And he sends his angel, the seraphim, the same ones that are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, to take from the altar a burning coal and to carry it over to where Isaiah is and to touch his mouth with that coal. And the angel speaks the word of the Lord to Isaiah. He says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. And that is what the Lord, the only true and holy God, does for us in Jesus Christ. We are not holy, but in Jesus, He atones for all of our sins and pardons all of our guilt. He makes us holy. He sets us apart. He purifies us. In the very next verse, so Isaiah goes from lost, I am lost, I am condemned, To God declaring your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The very next sentence is the Lord himself speaking. He says, who is going to go for us? In other words, who is going to go and tell the world what I have to say to them? Isaiah's response. Here am I. Send me. Isaiah had a vision of who God is. And why he is worthy of all of his life and all of his love and all of his devotion that led him from from thinking that he was lost to saying, I will go for you and show the world who you are. The people of Judah then had Isaiah to tell them and to show them who God is, that he is worthy of all of their lives and all of their love and all of their devotion. We... The people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, we have the very word of God. We have Jesus Christ himself who shows us who God is and that he is worthy of all of our love and all of our lives and all of our devotion. My question for us is, who do our neighbors have? Isaiah had a vision from the Lord. The people of Judah, whom he served, had Isaiah. We have Jesus, the word of God, who do our neighbors have? They have us. Your neighbors have you. The same Old Testament passage that Jesus quotes to the lawyer when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's Leviticus 19. And in that same passage, God says to his people Israel, be holy as I am holy. There is a connection between holiness and and loving our neighbors as ourselves. A connection between holiness and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We love our neighbors when we show them who God is through our holiness. We love our neighbors when we show them who God is through our holiness. Now, my dad uh, did not grow up in church. The Lord called him to himself in college, and, and he ended up becoming a pastor, and that was one of the great blessings of my life. Uh, It's also what led me to never want to be a pastor, but guess what? Um, But my dad didn't grow up in church, but because he grew up in the South, occasionally they would show up at their local Baptist church for worship. And one day, my dad was in worship with his his mom and and his siblings, uh, and one of his classmates from school walked the aisle and was baptized. And he comes down from the baptismal, he's dripping wet, he walks past my dad, and My dad kind of knows this kid as a tough person to know. And and so when he goes and sits down, my dad turns around and looks at him. 
And the kid winks at him and gives him the finger. My kids are going to ask later what the finger is. I did that to myself. But I wonder sometimes if what our neighbors see when they look at our lives brings that same level of cognitive dissonance. I wonder if they see us, as, as this kid did, right? He, he, he took the name of Jesus in baptism, and then he gave a wink and a finger. With our lives, do we do that? We are the ones who bear the name of Christ. We are the ones who have been set apart and purified by him so that we might show the world who he is. Holy, holy, holy. But do our lives demonstrate who he is? Well, that's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would just encourage you to go ahead and turn there because we're going to spend some time this morning in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So look with me at Matthew 5, and we'll start in verse 14 through 16, where Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We love our neighbors when we show them who God is through our holiness. When we shine the light of Christ through our lives. When they see our good works and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. What does practical holiness look like? What does holiness look like in real life? Well, I'm convinced that that's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I would just commend that to you to go home and and read through it this week. This vision of practical holiness that Jesus gives us. It's, It's his vision for life in his kingdom. See, Jesus is king. He came into the world to declare the kingdom. His first message to all the people who could hear him was, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus inaugurates that kingdom. He is right now reigning at the right hand of God. And he is ruling and reigning through his church in the world. And he gives us this vision for what his church is supposed to look like. In the world, life under his rule and reign. And it's in contrast to life under the sun. It's in contrast to the way the world does things. Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount a counter-narrative to the narrative that that the world is giving. Jesus gives us a better story to tell with our lives. Practical holiness is a better story than the one that the world is telling when people look at our lives. So practical holiness, the first thing that we see, and we'll go through several, and we're going to go through several places here in the Sermon on the Mount as as quickly as possible, but I want us to get this. Practical holiness pursues reconciliation instead of anger. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come. And offer your gift. 
Jesus gives us a counter-narrative to the narrative that the world is telling, a, a better story. And it's a story not of anger when someone offends you and wrongs you, but a story of reconciliation and forgiveness, of self-sacrifice, self-denial, and restitution. Practical holiness honors people instead of objectifying them. Look at verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a better story than the one the world tells that people should be defined by, identified by their sexuality and their sexual value. Now, the story that God tells is that every single person is beautiful. That every single person has dignity and worth. That they are not to be objectified because they are made in the very image of God. They're to be loved. Practical holiness values marriage instead of dismissing it. 31 through 33. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let, her give him, um, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's a counter-narrative to a world of easy and no-fault divorce. It's it's a counter-narrative to the world that says that marriage can be anything that you want. No, the scriptures say that marriage is meant not to be an end in itself but to be a picture between Christ and His church. Therefore, marriage can only be what God says it is, and marriage cannot easily be torn apart because what God has joined together, let no one separate. Holiness. Practical holiness keeps its word. 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Also, you cannot make them stay. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In a world where we are marketed everything under the sun as you need this particular thing in your life, and if you don't have it, your life is not fulfilling its purpose. You're not having what you ultimately should have. A world that overpromises and underdelivers the people of God are to tell a better story by letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Holiness. Practical holiness shares instead of retaliates. Y'all, this is revolutionary if we will listen to Jesus. 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him Two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a counter narrative to selfishness and consumerism and greed. 
We have a better story to tell, one with an open hand, so that we can share whatever we have without fear, because it comes from God, and he will provide according to his riches and glory. Practical holiness loves the unlovable and the enemy, 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Then he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be holy. As I am holy, because our God is a God who makes his enemies his children. We cannot be the people of God if we will not love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. And this is a counter-narrative to the story the world tells, where we are to kill and to crush and to defeat our enemies. No. And I would commend to you praying for those that you don't like, and those who don't like you is a great start to loving them. Practical holiness gives for God instead of man's praise. This is where Jesus says that we should give in secret, not in public. And this is a counter-narrative to public public philanthropy for public praise. Practical holiness acknowledges dependence on God. That's where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray like the Lord's Prayer. And what a subversive thing that it is, y'all. In our culture, when we invite people into our homes or or whether we're out in a restaurant, wherever we are with people, when we have the opportunity to eat a meal, that we stop first. And not as a show, not as a display of our righteousness, but simply as an expression of our dependence on the God who provides that we thank him for our meal. That we would show dependence on God in all things, that we would acknowledge our need for him in everything. Practical holiness forgives instead of holding grudges. Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses against you, you will also be forgiven. This is a counterintuitive to the Pharisaism of our culture that wants to cancel you if you do or say anything wrong. Practical holiness treasures the eternal instead of the temporary. And I'm going to read this. 15, I'm sorry, that's going to be, we're going to read 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a counter-narrative to the prosperity gospel that we are meant to be made comfortable in all things, that we are to have everything that we want in this life. Practical holiness is confident in God's provision instead of anxious. 25 and following, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is, is life more than food? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is a better story than the story of controlling your life that the world tells. The world says that we need to get on top of things, that we need to control our lives. But you know what happens when we try to control our lives? We are ridden with anxiety because we can't do it. It's impossible to control our lives. And what people, what our neighbors need to see is the better story of relying on God for everything and not being anxious about what he has promised to provide. I'm not going to read in in chapter 7, but I just want to go through these quickly. Practical holiness seeks first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And that's counterintuitive. That's counter-narrative to seeking after my kingdom and my good. Practical holiness attends to the log in my eye before attending to the speck in yours. That's counter-narrative to self-exaltation and congratulation. Practical holiness expects good things from the Lord and asks for them. Practical holiness expects good things from the Lord and asks for them. The world says if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. But we as believers, we know that God is our Father. And Jesus says, look, if your son asks you for a loaf of bread, are you going to give him a stone? If your son asks you for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent? Well, if you being evil... And know how to give good gifts for your children. How much more will God give good things to those who ask him? Our neighbors need to see us not having an orphan mentality. But knowing we have a good, good father who provides for all of our needs. And gives us all the good gifts that are necessary for our lives. Practical holiness does to others what we wish others would do for me. If I ask my daughters right now, I'm not going to. What does daddy always say to you? They would say, Treat my sister like I want to be treated. And oftentimes when I'll say, hey, you need to treat your sister the way that you want to be treated, the response is, but she. Right? And we all do that, right? But they did this to me. But listen, what Jesus says is the law and the prophets is not to do to others what they have already done to you, but to do for them what you wish they would do for you. It's a counter-narrative to paying back what others do to me. Practical holiness enters by the narrow gates and the hard way, and that's a counter-narrative to the pursuit of ease and comfort. Practical holiness produces good fruit, which is a counter-narrative to much of the fruit that the church has provided and produced. Practical holiness withstands the storms of life because it is built upon the rock. One of my favorite things about being your pastor is that I get to, in my weak and imperfect and failing way, walk with you through the storms of life. I'm sorry for the ways that I fail in that, but what I have seen time and again is God's faithfulness in your faithfulness. When you have gone through the most difficult parts of your life, 
you have remained firmly planted with your feet on the rock. So when the winds blew and the rains came down, your house stood firm. And our neighbors, their houses are built on sand. They're trusting in themselves to get through the storms that they are facing. And so they need to be able to look to those who follow Jesus Christ and they need to see the holiness of standing on the rock, come what may. When we live this way, when we live out the vision of holiness that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, we show our neighbors who God is through our holiness. Here's the problem. We're not holy as God is holy. That is to say, we are not perfectly holy. Yes, our lives can give a counter-narrative to what the world believes is true, and we do love our neighbors when our lives tell a better story. But the reality is, because we still wrestle with sin, because we still have so much brokenness in our lives and in our relationships, our lives tell the better story inconsistently, don't they? We tell the good news inconsistently. We tell it in fits and starts, successes and failures, advances and retreats. Two steps forward, one step back. If this isn't your story, raise your hand. It's mine. And here is where the better story that we are called to tell gets even better. The story our lives tell through our holiness And our failed attempts at holiness is not about us. And this is where humility comes in. We love our neighbors when we realize that this better story is not about us. See, we might hear this message that I've just given. We might hear Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And we might think, okay, I know what to do i got to white-knuckle this thing. I've got to pick myself up by my bootstraps, and I have got to tell my neighbors a better story through personal and practical holiness. I need to do better and try harder and be more. What I would say is that when we focus on ourselves, when we put that pressure on ourselves to do more and try harder and be better, we're not actually telling the world a better story. That's the same story the world is telling The world is telling the story, try harder, be more, do better, and good luck. And it might result in better behavior. If we we really try hard to do what Jesus tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, we might behave better. But it will not result in holiness. And it will not result in love for our neighbor. The better story our lives tell isn't about us. It's about Jesus. It is about the real hope of the gospel, the real better story, the real counter-narrative. When we fail to be holy, which in my case is a lot, our lives tell the story of His grace toward sinners. When by His grace we exhibit holiness in our lives, our lives tell the story of real hope for real transformation in real life. Real power from a real person for real people. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that good behavior will make us proud of ourselves. A good behavior will make us haughty when we do it in our own strength. The gospel of Jesus and the true holiness that it produces instead makes us humble. 
Good behavior makes us look at ourselves as if we are better than our neighbors. The gospel of Jesus sends us to our neighbors in humility as beggars who have found bread, trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. The basis for the kingdom life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, the theme of the counter-narrative that we are called to live, is found in the Sermon on the Mount before all of the passages that we read and described. It's found in Matthew 5.17, and it's really the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. See, what Jesus is doing, yes, is giving a vision for life in his kingdom. He is calling us to tell a better story with lives of holiness. But he is first and foremost preaching to us the way in which we are transformed. He is preaching to us the gospel. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. By the way, that should... Perk your ears up, right? Because what we've been reading is that on these two commandments hang all of the what? The law and the prophets. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish that. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets for you. He did so by living a perfectly holy human life, by fulfilling the law and the prophets completely, by dying for your sins and your failures to love God and your neighbor, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He did it by rising again to secure for you life and love and joy for eternity. And this is the theme of the story that our lives tell. We love our neighbors through holiness and through humility, by telling them the better story, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Next week, we'll talk about what does it mean to love our neighbors with the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you that your word is true, that it exposes, Lord, our hearts before you, that it cuts through bone and marrow. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to to grasp, to believe, and to apply what your word has said to us. Lord, help us to live lives of holiness before our neighbors. Lord, help us to tell with our lives a better story, believing that you are who you say you are. But Lord, help us also to find the humility that the gospel brings. Lord, that reminds us that we were where our neighbors are. And that the only difference between us and them is that you have rescued us. And Lord, lay it on our hearts to go to them. To display in our actions your great love. And to tell them the story of how we have been transformed. And the real hope that we have for right now and for eternity. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.